Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another Curzon Film Podcast, where this week we will be going back to a time when posting your story didn't mean Snapchatting your lunch, but something arguably more important. Yes, we are back in the safe hands of our favourite uncle of cinema, Steven Spielberg, for his journalistic throwback that feels all too present, it's The Post. And two intrepid reporters joining me to break this story this week are Ryan Hewitt and Irena Musumeci. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello, Jake. How are we doing? Uh, I'm a bit ill. Yes. Yes, and I sound it probably, but here we are serving the story. I, s- I spend a lot of time sitting next to Irena, so inevitably will be ill this time next week. It's so nice to be sharing the germs <laughs> as well as everything else. Sharing the germs. <laughs> so we we're, we're here to talk about uh, the Post, which is a Steven Spielberg film that didn't exist twelve months ago, and suddenly uh, it's a it's a nice kind of post Christmas surprise to be given a Steven Spielberg film that you didn't know was happening. He turned that around quickly in the uh, the way that only Steven Spielberg and Ridley Scott apparently can. Yeah, and uh, so we'll be diving right in to the post, and uh, it's not the only thing that we have been watching. As always, we like to catch up with each other. Ryan, uh, over the last week, what have you been watching? So I went to the Prince Charles Cinema this Sunday. There are I other wa- cinemas? There are <laughs> other cinemas. There are other cinemas available, some of them very nice, but you know, you know. I went to see... Magnolia in 35mm. This was the first time that I've seen Magnolia on film. It's the first time I've seen it in the cinema. I was probably a bit too young when it first came out to see it. Doing a quick uh, sums. Yeah, I was too young. I wasn't 18. Mm. But I've seen Magnolia countless times. I've lost count of how many times, but I've never seen it on the big screen. And it wasn't exactly watching it afresh, but I noticed so many things that were just lost on a small screen. So many details in the background, so much that he's filled, that Paul Thomas Anderson has filled the frame with that just, it just just changed my view of Mm. certain storylines. You know, it's a magnificent film. I think it's his best film. I can't wait to see Phantom Thread in a couple of weeks' time. And it just got me all excited again for Paul Thomas Anderson. Glad to have him back. It was, I I couldn't make that screening, but I, uh, I joined in from a faraway distance and watched it at home on the same evening. Um, and I have yet to see it on a big screen. And all this talk about it has got me so excited to do so. I'm hoping that this Paul Thomas Anderson tour that's been going on and Phantom Thread means maybe there'll be a few more screenings that pop up because it's the kind of film that you do watch and immediately you can turn around and go back in 
and watch it again. Yeah. Which is exactly what I did when I saw it back in cinemas when <laughs> it was released <laughs> in 1999. So that dates me a bit. <laughs> uh, but also, yeah, it makes me think I really should go back and rewatch it because I don't think I've seen it since. Uh, and I don't know why exactly because it's a film I really loved. It felt really like a proper grown-up film by a grown-up filmmaker. Yeah, it's an epic one. Yeah. And I think it's got a renewed relevance as well, certainly with the storylines relating to kind of the, the uh, Tom Cruise's character, this kind mm. of predatory male behaviour is like all out there and, and lampooned brilliantly by t- Tom Cruise's performance. And also this idea of, um, oh, it's heavy stuff, historical sex cases, abuse cases mm. and things like that with the game show host character. Yeah. It's all coming out and having to admit things and like, and yeah. also, like, the general end of the world feeling. Oh, the apocalypse. Yeah. Egypt, the apocalypse. Yeah. yeah. It's all happening. Yeah, because a few people have been re-watching it ahead of Phantom Thread. I've read a lot of new coverage on it and new thoughts on it, which have been really nice as well. And I, I really like, I, I won't spoil it, but this idea that people were complaining maybe that the film has no point and that it's far too melodramatic. And someone on Twitter pointed out that this three hours and eight minutes is worth it and the point of it is to earn the final action of the film. Yeah. Which I thought was wonderful. And if you know what that is, I yeah. think is really lovely. And that, that is what it's all about, is earning that moment. Did, yeah. you, did you hear the interview in which PTA was asked, uh, what would you do if you were making Magnolia today? And he said, I would cut 20 minutes. From <laughs> <a> minute. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> But hopefully not the last 20 minutes. No, that no, is wonderful. keep those intact. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Arena, what have you been up to? Uh, I was very lucky to catch a very early screening of the new film by the Russian director Andrei Tsvyaginsev. Uh, it's called Loveless. Uh, he was a director of Leviathan and The Return. He's a, he's a proper, proper filmmaker. Loveless is a really interesting, uh, also very timely film in, in very different ways. It, it talks a lot about... Uh, in very uh, sideways ways about the world today. It's got a big allegorical power to it. Uh, But essentially it's the story of this couple who are arguing, they're getting divorced, it's very bitter, it's totally horrid, uh, and the child goes missing. Um, So it's it's got this kind of thriller element, but it's one of those uh, ponderous art house films that really will last through the ages, I think. So I'm very excited. Uh, I think we'll be covering... Yes, yes, uh, we will have a whole episode dedicated fantastic. to this. Uh, don't think I, I haven't had the chance to see it. I don't think you I have yet, yet, Ryan. No. Um, but yes, in a few weeks, at the start of February, we'll be dedicating a whole episode to that. And I'm Brilliant. sure we'll be very excited to do so. And what, what have I been watching? I hear you ask. So my, my dad has got, I kind of hold this thing over me that he always knew that Heaven's Gate was brilliant. And that uh, when he, he saw... Did. Uh, he did. He did, yeah. And okay. he's like, he's like, and he always likes to point that out. He's like, when, well, yeah, when I saw it, I knew. And uh, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring to say I've got a new, I've got a new one that I know. In 20 years, people are going to realise it is great. Oh, I got, I love this. Yeah, this is Paul McGuigan's Victor Frankenstein. <laughs> Goodness me! Yeah, uh, you've already grossed me out with a tweet about this. Yes, <laughs> yes, I did. Starring Daniel Radcliffe and James oh. McAvoy. Daniel, it is the Frankenstein tale told from Eagle's perspective, and it is quite a remarkable feat of filmmaking. Um, <laughs> I thought Ben Brooks's Young Frankenstein was already pretty much the story from 
the realistic point of view of Igor. Yes, yeah, very played by realistic. Martin Feldman. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't need another Frankenstein film. I Thank think you, very you much. do. I got that one. <laughs> you, this one is a real surprise. And I mean, going back to Mary Shelley, Shelley's Frankenstein, there have certainly been some queer readings of that story, mm. but not in the scale of this. Um, there is some remarkable sequences in here, a particular one where James McAvoy's Frankenstein brings uh, Daniel Radcliffe's Igor, a hunchback at this point, brings him home and he says, I'm going to slip into something more comfortable. Comes out in this bondage gear and penetrates a bulbous <gasps> ball on the back of Daniel <laughs> of Daniel Radcliffe's back <laughs> and drains this ball of white fluid oh. into a bucket. And I thought that Robert oh. De Niro and Kenneth Branagh like writhing in <laughs> Vaseline yeah. in a tub of Vaseline was already like hitting the spot. On that no, one. this <laughs> this is this is going to be reread in twenty years, and I promise you, you will you'll be all over Victor Frankenstein, and you'll remember the day that you were in this room and you said, well, "We will you give know. you due credit when yeah. the day comes, I, Jake." I think you were down in history officially yeah. <laughs> as, as the man leading the revision that I yeah. hope never happens. <laughs> but talking about Spielberg's *The Post*, <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, credit to anyone that can find a usable segue between the point I've just made and yeah. the film <laughs> we will be talking about. So, Steven Spielberg's *The Post*. Uh, Arena, you've got a sheet full of dates that are going to contextualize this film for us. I do have a sheet full of dates. Uh, so the post uh, takes place date 1971. Uh, it's 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 a lot of different stories wrapped into one, which is why I kind of wanted to contextualize it properly. But essentially, the the core of it is the story of how the Washington Post uh, leaked and published uh, what's what's now called the Pentagon Papers. A, uh, a series of documents that proved uh, the U.S. government's implications and culpability in the Vietnam War. Uh, now, bear with me, the story gets more exciting than that, <laughs> because the Post actually focuses on the uh, rather formidable uh, female owner of the Washington Post at this time, uh, Kay Graham, who was, in fact, the first woman ever to own a Fortune 500 listed company and was really a groundbreaking newspaper um, editor. Uh, she, sorry, not editor, a newspaper owner. Uh, her, her foil in the film is uh, is um, Tom Hanks's Ben Bradley, who was the editor of the Washington Post at the time. And together, the two of them really embarked on this quest for the the rights of the people to know the truth about the government and how the government was lying to them uh, about the Vietnam War specifically. But then, this is kind of the story that paves the way for Watergate. Uh, and the demise of Nixon. So Steven Spielberg's The Post is an incredibly timely film about fake news and uh, alternative facts and how to fight them. It's truly an ode to journalism. And I think for me, one of the most interesting things is how it presents journalism as warfare from the very, very beginning of the film and kind of grounds, the, the, lays the ground for a, um, the idea that you have to fight for, for the truth. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty interesting, very timely film. There's a lot of allusions to the Trump era that are very much not veiled. Uh, and uh, I think a very hopeful kind of film at the moment. Brian, you were there on the same night as us. We were... We were there in the yeah. we were in the in, room with in Spielberg, the of all of them. yeah, and Tom Hanks, yeah, and Streep, everyone. Um, and this was on the the f the final premiere that Spielberg would do at the Odeon Leicester Square before it was refurbished. And he said that he was in that very room forty one years ago for Close Encounters. Yeah. So it felt um like mm. we we we're lucky enough to go to quite a few press screenings, early shows, but actually going to the event where people are there to talk about that, and you felt this romance in the room. 
and particularly with a film like this that is kind of Spielberg at his he's clearly passionate about yeah. it as well like there's a romance that he has for the subject and it felt very special to be in that room and kind of sharing that moment with them I completely agree especially what you say about the romance of filmmaking and Spielberg is he's not the only person who really leans into that but he is one of the rare filmmakers who just seems to be completely in awe still of cinema and the medium and he loves it and he is completely unabashed about how he will just, just the magic of cinema is yeah. what he's about isn't it yeah well um like you mentioned earlier about ridley scott turning something around really quickly um i don't want to bash ridley scott and i think ridley scott is great but in recent interviews when you read about his process on all the money in the world that is it doesn't read like a man who's in love with cinema <laughs> it's not very a workman like yeah it? yeah like the way that he approaches it like I know exactly what shots I need, who needs to be there, what I need to do. And it feels like he's breaking down a film onto an Excel spreadsheet. And for him, that clearly works because he makes some great films. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that's the case with Spielberg. I remember I mentioned to you on when we were talking about Bridge of Spies on Twitter that the opening shot of that, which is wonderful, was improvised on set. And you feel like Spielberg is so he's still got that childhood playfulness about him that he wants to just get on set, get the camera out and see what happens. Yeah, and he wants to fit in films wherever wherever he can, doesn't mm. he? Like I, I you know, this is sort of shot in the downtime between finishing off Ready Player mm. 1, which is some enormous scale CGI fest. Uh, that's again something that only Spielberg really could do well, I think, or hopefully. And it's reminiscent of when he went and shot Shin's List while still finishing off Jurassic Park and this is not a man who's just like oh you know got to make the bucks got to get another yeah. one in it's like oh I've got a window yeah I can he's do got another one let me go and do another one yeah it also I mean it really does feel though, as though he's a man on a mission like he, he wanted this film to be out now because mm. it's so timely yeah and the fact that he managed to get onto that quite quickly and and churn it out in a way is really impressive and makes it even more timely just just go back to the before this film existed um, and the timeline of it. So this is a debut script from Liz Hanna. Uh, the rights were won by Amy Pascal of Sony in October 2016, which is not very long ago at <laughs> yeah. all. Spielberg takes it in February 17. They start shooting on May the 30th last year. So that is eight, nine months ago. And now we've ended up with it, uh, which is a phenomenal piece of work. Along the way, Josh Singer. Uh, who wrote Spotlight, which is obviously another film that is really celebrating uh, the value of great uh, truthful journalism, has brought in to tidy it up. And then we've ended up with this product at the end of it. And it doesn't feel scrappy. It feels polished. It doesn't feel like it's just been wrapped up. It really doesn't. I mean, Josh Singer was also a writer on The West Wing. He sort of took over. Um, I think he started in 2003, so it would have been around about the time when Sorkin was passing the baton on to John Wells, who was the big showrunner at that point. Um, and, I mean, writers on The West Wing know how to turn around a script pretty <laughs> fast, uh, and it's a pretty snappy kind of script, so you can definitely see his influence in that. He was, th he was brought on board to... Um, kind of create a, a sense of the lives of the various reporters around the two main characters, played mm. by Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, whereas the core of that relationship between Ben Bradley and Kay Graham already existed in the um, in Liz Hanna's script, and she kind of worked with the biographies about both of them separately and then kind of brought them together. And I think it's really lovely when you see two screenwriters wh whose work can really coexist mm, to such a high degree particularly because it's a it's a male female team and the film is so much about this woman's journey from a place of deep insecurity to the top 
of this company and making this momentous decision that effectively changed journalism and really changed the course of American history. So to their credit, I think that the central partnership reflects the partnership that's at the core of the film. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, the the two leads, that's Streep and Hanks, do a really good job um, in that they are maybe in advertising or the, just because we're presented with those names, we think instantly that they're allies and they're just in the pursuit of truth. But there is actually a big kind of moral quandary at the centre of it for Meryl Streep's character, for Kay Graham, about publishing these papers, not necessarily from a financial perspective, like this is very much a personal issue for her, which is not something I knew about, that the people that she could be publishing incriminating evidence about are people that she's friends with. And that's what the film does really well in that these are personal stories as much as they are national stories. Absolutely, and I think that's another reason why we're seeing this story. It, the story is about the Post. I mean, in this, there's a version of this story called The Times, who broke, mm. the, broke the printing papers first. But the choice to focus on The Post is because it has this rich backstory within the characters and it has the personal... Well, not Mendes, yeah, the personal difficulties mm. in all of these decisions. Yeah, uh, a couple of the New York Times writers uh, actually have, have brought this up and James Goodale, who was the, the legal counsel at the time, said it's a good movie but bad history. Um, That's interesting because in the film they mention how journalism is seen as the first rough draft of history. Yeah. I, I really like that phrase, but also I always think films are never a draft of history. Films are the fantasy of history. You have the power to rewrite it, to focused you know to put your camera in a completely different place and Spielberg's films in particular all of his historical films uh, have this kind of boys on adventure view of history which is both uh, a great joy and pleasure to engage with but also has some drawbacks uh, for me personally in some of his um, some of his political films Munich I have some issues with um, and uh, it, it here it's it's interesting how he brings this kind of point of view of real excitement about you know telling the, the telling the story but mm. also telling history through his filmmaking onto the journalist so there's the kind of this double textual thing going on at, at all times something something that i noticed which is i I'm, it's coincidence that the two scripts have been so close together for spielberg uh, i we, we talked a few weeks ago about films that we watch on christmas and it turns out that my accidental christmas tradition has become bridge of spies which <laughs> i watched on christmas day and in a scene in this and a scene in Bridge of Spies where a, uh, there is a big debate that is brought into Congress and you have these looming uh, white columns in front of this red background. Uh, obviously, this is appearing as the American flag. And I love that he is creating that idea of the nation kind of forcing itself on these people and how much that they are shouldering the weight of the belief of the country on them. And so you've got that with Tom Hanks being the lawyer having to defend the rights of a Russian spy who or may or may not be a Russian spy, but it's not necessarily standing up for what the more nationalist belief would be. We need to crush this person. It's we need to stand up for the truth and the correct procedure. And the I think that's process, the yeah. same as what we're seeing in the post as well. Yeah, which I mean, the post is very much a kind of uh, a filmic uh, defense of the First Amendment. And there's the passion for everything constitutional that goes across so many uh, American pop cultural um, products. I mean, I'm thinking now The West Wing, which obviously I'm a big fan of, but Hamilton the musical is the same. There's, there's all this sort of the power and ponderance of 
uh, this piece of paper that defends the rights of the people. And the First Amendment is the amendment that is about the freedom of the press, but also the freedom of the people to assemble and to petition the government to change. So it's really the, the quintessential freedom um, to say, we don't like this, this needs to change. And it's almost like a, a rally, a call for arms. Um, one thing that I do think is quite fascinating about the post is how much this kind of this sense of what America looked like at the time. Uh, it's almost like a, a world that's losing shape. Uh, I, I had this feeling throughout the film watching people's clothes and the way they, they move and the way they dress and the way they inhabit spaces. I was thinking initially at the beginning of the film, I thought, oh, this is going to be like Mad Men. It's going to remind me of the kind of crisp, cool, mm. late 60s, you know, funky colors and, and things uh, sort of somehow, you know, carrying on from the past. But throughout the film, there are these recurrent motifs where you're looking at, there are people looking at photographs of the past. Kay Graham's uh, late husband, who was the owner of the post, uh, who, who uh, subsequently after his death, uh, she inherited the newspaper. And it, it was her father who owned the newspaper initially. So in traditional patriarchal manner, uh, the, the paper was passed on from the father to the father to the son-in-law, not to his daughter. And then suddenly she's the one who, who's having to change that course of history and t takes it on after his death. So there's all this kind of sense of how the past still impinges on the present. And then there are moments when um, Tom Hanks as Ben Bradley is looking at pictures of himself in the company of the Kennedys. Uh, and as JFK and uh, and uh, Jackie Kennedy, and both of them loom very large onto the film. And it, I kind of connected this to my memories of watching Jackie last year. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Pablo Lorraine's jacket. And this sense of this golden world that people imagined that they were living in in the Kennedy era and how it falls apart in 63 um, with Kennedy's assassination. And if you remember what happens in Mad Men, everything looks really kind of quite cool and sharp to begin with, but then things start to fall mm. apart. And really, the post kind of picks up at this point where people have put on weight. Their hair looks rubbish. Yeah. Uh, their, their tires are kind of falling apart. Their clothes don't yeah, fit them anymore. Yeah, Everyone's a little bit shabby. People are clumsy. A lot of the reporters kind of, you know, fall over themselves to, to reach the point where they can make the phone call and then they drop all their change and all this kind of stuff keeps happening. So it's almost a sense in which this place and this world is is not quite the imaginary, mm. wonderful, ideal world and the ideal America that 
people had in mind when this sort of promise of a golden era in the 60s was taking place. And that really does connect that sense of Vietnam being such a watershed moment for, for American history, which is why I wrote down all these dates, yeah. uh, <laughs> because essentially this is the story of how a newspaper revealed to the American people that the American government knew that they weren't going to win in Vietnam and they still sent boys to die. Mm. Over 59,000 young men died in Vietnam. Um, that's on the American side. The war lasted 20 years, and the Pentagon Papers really track down the beginning of the Vietnam War from way, way before Kennedy. Um, and so it, it's just this kind of sense of the moment in which you are revealed that things aren't good <laughs> and things don't look right and something must be done to change them that I think this film is very interested in. Mm, yeah i think it it feels like there's a the big splitting decision right at the middle of it for both on both sides you said that uh tom hanks's character is looking at his photo of J of him jfk and you've got uh k graham who is actually friends uh with robert mcmara played by Bruce greenwood and ultimately they're having to come to a decision that maybe no one's really had to face before where they're having to split from having a, a kind of cordial friendly relationship with the government because they that is no longer something that they can maintain if they want to maintain that f free truthful press yeah and uh, McNamara is uh he's played by him um, actually someone who is in Mad Men mm. he plays uh, he's uh Richard who is uh John's boyfriend in the final <laughs> season of Mad Men which is you know by that point everyone's overweight and yeah. not looking their best <laughs> um uh, so Bruce Greenwood uh, appears as Robin McNamara um it's an interesting performance because he's actually quite sort of friendly and you can see his point yeah. and what's given away the fact that actually he was a pretty nasty evil man yeah. who was a businessman who happened to become Secretary of Defense under the uh, under Kennedy um, it's his hair I found yeah. his well, hair really quite what's, um, creepy what's Willy Wonka's spy I can't remember. he's the one that's sent to go and spy on Charlie he's not called McNamara no. <laughs> but he's got that look about him that he like whatever he says you instantly don't trust because his, his hair's a bit too slick yeah and he's yeah. all a bit too is he, he looks too yeah passing, the yeah. suit hangs a bit too loose he looks like he's a bit skeletal underneath it's so he's definitely untrustworthy from the first moment yeah and the film begins with him lying mm. openly to the press so yeah. he's uh he's on the plane he's asking can we win the war no is the answer he goes out to the press they go Mr. McNamara, can we win this war? Yes. <laughs> so you know from the beginning that it's it's the it's the lies that we need to fight. Yeah, um, and that that's Bruce Greenwood, who is one in an astonishing cast. We have a list in front of us here. Um, we've got Michael Stuhlberg, who is who's yeah. got the best ratio of potential starring in yeah. the Best Picture nominees ever. <laughs> You've got David Cross of Arrested Development, I know, yeah. uh, who was unrecognizable, and it it did actually it took me a few scenes, and it was like. Oh, that is Dr. Tobias Funke <laughs> from Arrested <laughs> Development. Um, and as you said, everyone's a bit overweight and everyone's hair is terrible and everyone's beard is a bit mangled and looks like they've got a, a pizza stain down their shirt or something. Um, and David Cross very much <laughs> emphasises that. But uh, Jesse Plements, Carrie Coon, Alison Brie, Bradley Whitford, Tracy Letts, Bob Odenkirk, Sarah Paulson, Tom Hanks and Meryl Street. It's and a pretty Sasha Spielberg. Ah. Stephen's daughter. Plain... <laughs> bit of a spoiler don't know if okay. I can say it she plays a hippie looking oh mm. okay right gotcha yeah. well we can't talk about all of those performances so let's uh, let's break it down to the big ones uh, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks surprisingly in a shocking <laughs> move 
they're good, Ryan. You've got yeah, the scoop. I think um, I think Meryl Streep in particular owns this. I think Tom Hanks. Oh, I love Tom Hanks to pieces. Uh, he's got a slightly peculiar accent in this one that did take me a little while to get used to, but he's great and they're great together. And in particularly in the first couple of scenes, or their first two scenes together, I was reminded of, of um, his girl Friday quite a bit. Partly because of this newspaper setting, partly because of the way it's been written with this machine gun kind of dialogue where particularly, uh, well, they both seem to know what the other one's going to say and they've already got mm. their reply ready-made and it's got this really fun back and forth between them and the two of them just work brilliantly together. It's kind of hard to believe that they've never been on screen together before. Yeah, well, it, so it doesn't feel like together. it at all. Yeah. They just jump right in and it's it's almost like a two sitcom characters that are just entering season 12 or something. Yeah. And they're, just, they're just so used to it at this point. Yeah, and that absolutely. she's she's the kind of cranky boss, and he just wants to be letting do his own thing. Like maybe he's like he's like the renegade cop, and she's the boss. Yeah, and that that's the dynamic. But they play it really well. Okay. It also changes the relationship mm. between them as she gains more and more confidence in what she's doing, which is I know we've talked about this together in private, and that's kind of the part of the film where I I find myself really questioning. Uh, a little bit of the the journey of this character, Kay Graham, who is obviously played stunningly by Meryl Streep, and I, I've subsequently changed my mind again about. <laughs> so initially, I was thinking, oh God, do we have to see a woman being so like awkward and clumsy and lacking confidence, and you know everything in in the initial scenes, she's always kind of walking into these rooms where they reveal, you know, the the door opens and it's full of looming elderly white males and she's the only woman there and so yes I get it it's a woman in a men's world mm. um, and I was I was a bit suspicious of that because I wanted to see where we were going to be taken with this narrative you know in that I think there's a lot of discussion about empowering roles for women and uh, I essentially don't need to see Meryl Streep being clumsy to believe that she's powerful uh, and she's going to get to a point where she's powerful but apparently that's located in quite a lot of um authentic uh, uh, sort of recordings and uh, um, mem memoirs about Kay Graham. She was physically quite clumsy and kind of always sort of falling around uh, and um, had a great uh, lack of confidence. Uh, and then I was I realized I was being very harsh on this uh, on this trope in the film because what I wanted to see was the kind of yes, confident woman mm -hmm. takes over. Yes, she's the boss. But actually, uh, this film is not operating like that at all. It's sort of observing this idea of the woman in a men's world at a time when so many women found ways to be very powerful and very resilient in roles that were very traditional. Uh, another cast member, so Alison Brie, appears as a, um, a Kay Graham's daughter. Now, she plays a fantastic character in Mad Men, Trudy Campbell, who mm. was married to Pete. And she's a totally conventional uh sort of quite posh, wealthy, definitely, uh, woman who all she wants to do is stay at home and raise babies. Uh, but she wants to be treated well and she wants a decent life for the kids. And she is actually an incredibly strong character, yeah. even within the realms of that role. Mm -hmm. And actually thinking about Alison Brie being in this film made me rethink the way I saw Meryl Streep's performance uh, and really made me think about what happens to to Kay Graham as a character? She once she makes the decision to 
go through with it to publish you know to you know send send yeah. to press uh, uh, just to point out this that's not a spoiler if you're going yeah. into this that's film wondering whether or not they post that is they, history, they do <laughs> history um i i think she has a fascinating arc and i did actually then discovered some heightened empathy in myself as a woman thinking about that place of feeling you know lacking confidence in the moment when you're actually having to raise your voice and you're actually having to make the decision in front of a group of men so i i'm sort of umming and erring on the the woman's angle but i i do fall on the side of actually Stephen, thank you this is not you know the greatest thing that you can do for women but it's it's good start it's yeah. a good it's a good film and i, uh, I think it w- i think you were going to uh, touch on it uh, there that when she does decide to, to print it, her speech in that moment is not polished. That it's not mm. a, well, what maybe someone would call it like a Spielberg moment where someone suddenly decides that they're going to do the proactive thing and they're going to do the thing that's right and they're going to say it perfectly and you've got Meryl Streep and everyone in the room and we as viewers, because we know Meryl Streep and we know this type of film, we are expecting her to then go, let's do it or something like that. But she completely fumbles her words. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she it's, said... <laughs> Let, let's let's run. Let let's run. Let's let's run it. Let's do it. Do it. And I am going to bed. Yeah, <laughs> that's the yeah. next thing she yeah. said. Because absolutely, it's the middle of the night, and yeah. I'm a woman. I'm mm. gonna go. <laughs> Leave me alone. Yeah, uh, that's actually a, a middle of a five-way phone conversation, which is a really well done scene, which must have been a nightmare to film and edit. But congratulations to him because it's, it's a really lovely scene. There's so much of that from Spielberg. So mm. much, so many well orchestrated scenes of. Yeah, it's a, lot of film where there's a lot of people sitting in rooms on sofas, around tables, just talking. Mm. But the camera has got so much energy and it creates so much movement in the rooms. And there's almost moments when it feels a little bit theatrical and pantomime. There's a particular Steadicam shot in the uh, Bradley house where people move in and out of frames, they're having arguments, mm. lawyers are arguing with journalists, and it's all so perfectly timed that it's hyper real and it. But it just has the Spielberg magic to yeah. it. And yeah. it's so aware of what it is. Yeah. And there's a wonderful moment, or I think it's a wonderful moment at near the beginning that harks back to your point about the boy's own influence, where we f- we see the guy, it, it, this is in the first five minutes, it's not a spoiler, you see the guy in a dark room, dark office, and there's a filing cabinet, and he opens it with a torch. Yeah. And he finds the papers, and they look important. And then Spielberg's saying, you see these papers? These papers, <laughs> like, they look they look serious, don't they? <laughs> Just take a look down at the bottom here. It says top secret on the papers. <laughs> Just in case we didn't know. This, yeah. is the, this is it. This is the thing. And it's so... Uh, just unashamedly playing that kind of that Tintin influence yeah. and that even little bits of Indiana Jones, I suppose. Definitely. It's, it's, it's that spirit ad- of adventure. Yeah. And it's yeah. Put, putting the adventure in this uh, quite a dull environment. It's actually really encouraging. And you hope that... Like this is this is um, there might be a, quite a bit of dialogue for kids to get it, but to give kids or younger people that adventure platform, but yeah. in an office yeah. environment, would actually be really encouraging. To think, wow, it's just as cool to write things <laughs> yeah. uh, as it is to go and find uh, yeah. a treasure. Lost, yeah. Well, I mean, Tintin is a journalist, mm. so uh, that's course, his, yeah. his yeah. job. He's a reporter. reporter. Yeah. yeah. There's a lovely moment in the film that happens twice. It's a nice little gag that really reminded me of Tintin. There, there are two interns. One's in the New York Times, and one's at the Washington Post. And the Times intern gets sent to do something, and he 
runs out of the building and you, you're following him on the camera and he runs so fast across the road that this taxi car nearly hits him and kind of stops in front of him and breaks really hard yeah. and he's going oh okay sorry 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 and then you know half an hour later the washington post intern <laughs> is another kid in his 20s gets sent to do the same thing across from washington to new york and as he's crossing to go into the doors of the new york times again he's doing it so fast yeah. that the car just kind of breaks in front of it and it's a it's a really nice little gag but absolutely the reference to indiana jones i think the ending of this film is oh, yeah. raiders yeah. of the yeah, lost yeah. ark 100 yeah. <laughs> percent um and that, that final shot of the film takes place in the in the press where the washington post is made and this draws me into some fa- of my favorite sequences in the film which are the letterpress sequences oh, yeah. which i absolutely love and i think people listening might know that tom hanks is an enormous fan of typewriters and he absolutely loves them. And he's even guested on a podcast. Uh, after he said no, they sent him a typewriter, a really nice one. And he sent a reply back, written on the typewriter, saying it was like on the lines of, do you think I'll go on your podcast just because you sent me this <laughs> this wonderful <laughs> vintage typewriter? <laughs> oh, fine, I'll come on. Um, <laughs> and there are these uh, lovely montages where they are setting up the old letterpress and building the words and building the characters and making the paragraphs. And you see the front sheet on the day of the press as it's made out of metal. And you forget that that's how it's actually made. And it gives this physicality to journalism that we're really losing now. Like you would, This film wouldn't have the impact when someone post something on yeah i'd know online I, I something like snowden probably has that issue because it's just people sitting in a room on a laptop it's not as interesting if people can hammer something and you're really it's like a blacksmith building the champion's sword and handing it over to him as it's kind of still glowing with fire yeah it's like that's the feeling that we're getting as these uh, presses are being made there's a real physical way in which the news kind of travels from person to person even to the point where this person walks into the office and dumps a box in front of a reporter and says, are you important? He (laughs) says, yeah. And this box is full of the papers. And then the papers have to be taken, you know, physically from one person to the next. There's no, like, attachment to an email or anything. And then you see the first draft being handed from one person to the other. Mm. And there's, there's one kid whose job it is to run around the office and be the physical runner. Uh, and, and a lot about uh, sort of the physical act of carrying the news, which mm. is, it's really nice and nicely done. But it's, it's a beautiful sort of analog uh, kind of world. The coin operator telephones, I, I love. I yeah. miss those so much. But that's, uh, again, on that point that you've both made, there is something about the permanence of what's being written there. There's like a romance to that era mm. of we've we've had to forge these words in whatever kind of metal they mm. use for the presses and then it it's on a truck and we see the journey and we see the guys throwing in the papers out the back of a truck into the street for the newsstands and that's it like what we've written is now what's out there mm-hmm. there's none there's no option to go in and write a little update this is this article has been updated yeah, since yeah. we were made aware of something we got yeah. wrong like it's done it's written now there's a permanence to it which i think is really relished mm. in that process although it's interesting because we we didn't um we didn't really discuss this openly in terms of the difference between analog and uh, online journalism, but we can see recently that so much online journalism is having a major impact in in so many things. And I think, you know, obviously I'm thinking right now of the Weinstein story because it's so ongoing and relevant, and it was a piece in the New Yorker online first and then on the Mm. printed edition, which broke 
really the, the, the cycle of um, silence. Uh, but also there's a lot of parallels here with the stories of, uh, of Snowden, who we mentioned, of Chelsea Manning, uh, you know, people who were involved in the first person in various stories and managed somehow to find a way to leak them and bring them out. So it's really a sense of, you know, the, uh, it's a film that tries to speak to both the world of its era and is very maybe nostalgic about it, but also tries to say something about the world today and saying that there's a heroism in doing this, yeah. which uh, is not evident at all times. Uh, Chelsea Manning announced last week that she's going to run for office in Maryland, and I'm sure she's getting tons of abuse and she's still considered a traitor and someone you know she served a sentence for basically betraying the state and giving away uh, secrets to the enemy which is the treason charge that all of the characters in this film are facing the new york times and the washington post and it's the charge that Kay graham could have brought mm -hmm. on to herself to ben bradley to all the staff members of the washington post and everybody involved so the decision is really portentous and really significant and it, it's high stake game it's got high casualties especially at a time when the united states were at war in a very overt way uh vietnam's still ongoing in 1971 the draft is still going and so this idea that you are the person who's leaking uh, the secrets to the enemy or you know being a, a traitor to the state is a very significant one in terms of public opinion. Well, on that point, uh, I think that that definitely covers a lot of our thoughts on the post. Uh, do go out and watch it in cinemas uh, whilst you can, because it is a really, really wonderful film. But it's not actually the only film about American politics that's out this week, <laughs> is it? That's surprising, because American politics is so dull. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Nothing yeah. happens <laughs> no. these days. No, it's, it's never in the news, is it? <laughs> no. I, I often wonder. I, I go onto Twitter and I think, God, I wish people would tell me what the president of America is up to. <laughs> What's he thinking this morning? Yeah, because you just don't see it anymore. Right, uh, but there is actually a film about the American president, the former one, Barack Obama, called The Final Year, which is going to be in a few select cinemas and on Curzon Home Cinema. So if you cannot make it to one of the cinemas where it's playing, you can watch that. Uh, it's a documentary all about, you might have guessed it, the final year of Obama's office. Uh, Sam Howlett, another of our intrepid reporters, who is unable to join us this evening, as I'm sure he's breaking an important story somewhere else. He has seen the final year and can confirm it is excellent. And I look forward to watching it myself from Friday when it is out. But that's not the only thing on Curzon Home Cinema. Just this week, we added Borg McEnroe, which uh, came out last year. We did an interview with Stellan Skarsgård, and you can now watch that on Curzon Home Cinema too. So if you did miss that, then do go and check it out too. If you've got any thoughts on the post and you have seen it and you've listened to us talk about it, do send us an email at podcast at curzon.com as we would love to read your thoughts out and uh, review us on iTunes. You can subscribe, leave a review, leave a comment, rate us out of five stars. Do any and all of those because they do help us build an audience and get more listens and hopefully give you more lovely podcasts to listen to. But I think that must be the end of our show. And it's time to close the presses and say goodbye for this week. It's goodbye from Ryan. Goodbye. Goodbye from Miranda. Goodbye. Goodbye from me. Goodbye.